This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. Hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Welcome to episode 268, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. The deadline for public comment has passed, and the decision on whether the mammoth wind energy project planned for the Port-au-Port Peninsula and the Cadroy Valley now rests with the provincial government. The Environment Minister has until the end of the month to review the public comments received on the World Energy GH2 plan. But is the decision already made? That's what Political science professor Russell Williams thinks he was one of three panelists on a public forum organized last week by EnviroWatch NL. The forum was moderated by EnviroWatch NL co-chair Tara Manuel and by yours truly. Some excerpts from the forum for you this week, starting with Russell Williams on the similarities between the Muskrat Falls blunder and what's going down right now, insider financial interests being privileged over the public interest, and the taxpayer left to pick up the tab when things don't work out as promised. Russell Williams. That's the lesson from Muskrat Falls. So we fast forward to uh, the discussion of this project, this World Energy GH2 project. And in this case, you know, the minister right from the get-go promised that we wouldn't make those kind of mistakes again, right? This is Andrew Parson. He says, we're going to learn from that. We're not going to make these kinds of mistakes. It's rushed and it makes mistakes uh, that we've seen in the past. And, you know, maybe I'll mention just a couple off the top as examples. Auctioning public land without clear disclosure of what land is really under consideration, that's not a good process. That's not a serious public policy process. That's not a way to carefully assess broad public concerns, little alone the economic value of those lands to people who are already using them and benefiting from them. Not having a proper environmental assessment consideration and environmental concerns. It's not a good process. And I'm really disappointed that the federal government has decided to essentially exempt this project from that kind of an assessment. That, That should clearly be happening in this case. So again, not a good process. The piecemeal way that the public is discovering the range of public supports that are being given to this company, you know, whether we're talking about federal tax credits, potentially low cost uh, hydropower from NL Hydro, uh, an airport, a port essentially for free. Uh, when it's clear the government has already decided to go ahead with this, and I, I think we all know the government's already decided to go ahead with this, that's not a good process. We should know those things before the decision is made to actually go ahead with the process. And I, you know, I, I today land of door politics, so they're not going to be surprised to hear me say this, but of course the relationship between senior government officials and world energy itself is kind of unsavory, right? Um, uh, we needed some pretty serious independent assessments of what the public interest is here. Instead, we got trips to fishing lodges and flights on company jets, and, and that, that's not a good process. That's not how you assess the public interest in a serious way and, and make a careful assessment of whether this project is really something we should go ahead with. So um, I think 
that's a long answer to your question, Tara, but I, I think that this attitude of making decisions in this kind of slipshod way because we assume the land is kind of worthless and nature is kind of worthless and as long as it's going to produce a few jobs, who, who really cares? Um, this attitude hasn't served us well in the past. We need proper processes for evaluating mega projects like this. And what's going on right now is a pretty textbook example of how not to do those processes. Yeah, and, and the Conservation Council of New Brunswick who study uh, wind energy projects and how to go about implementing them in communities, they actually said, yeah, this is kind of a textbook case as to how to not go about it. And like you say, there's so many aspects to, to this that are questionable. It, it feels really frustrating to be told how fair the process is um, when we, we all know it's, it's not fair. It's not fair the way that the public has discovered it. Uh, the length of time the public has been given to respond to various aspects is not fair. And then there's the whole question of what's the opportunity cost of developing that land you know, for in the end, after the, the building phase of the project will be, you know, a couple of hundred jobs. It's it's possible there could be benefits, right? It, it's possible, again, I'm, I'm willing to concede that this might be a good project that will end up being viable. Um, but I mean, this is the question we should all be focused on. Is there a net benefit here? Is this really in the public's interest in this province? And I, I think it's hard for any of us to actually assess that at this moment in a, in a fair way, because the information we've been presented with is just so incomplete. We're, we're not running a serious process here. There's a lot of different things going on, and we're sort of getting just a drip, drip, drip of little to this story uh, that make it hard for us to know uh, whether um, whether this project is being carefully assessed or not. And I think we know it's not being carefully assessed. I think part of the reason why there's such a rush uh, to get this project in the ground so quickly is because the proponents of this project don't want to take the time and don't want us to have a chance to know exactly what the price tag is going to be for us down the road. Um, I will say uh, one thing that's fairly clear to me is the response by international experts is concerning about this project. And I'm speaking here about a, a relatively limited set of people. The kind of people that provide investment advice on these kinds of projects have really uh, have concerns about this project. They've essentially said they don't really think this is a very economically uh, viable project. It's going to be an expensive way to make and transport power. And so they're kind of scratching their head, not really sure about why this project is even going forward at the pace it's going forward. I think we kind of know that here in Newfoundland Labrador that the story is more complicated than that. We know that the proponents of this project have a good relationship with government and know that there's probably enough support coming from the government to make what otherwise might not be a good investment a good investment for them. And that, of course, should be alarming to us, right? That that's what's driving the project forward. I do think that the, the potential public benefits are pretty limited here. I, I imagine other panelists will have something to say about this. I mean, the federal government is going to give World Energy a lot of money for this project. We're probably also probably going to subsidize their operations, depending on what happens with uh, whatever deal they strike to access uh, NL Hydro's uh, power generation. Uh, there'll be little to no royalties for the project. 
And the public will also have to pay the cost for remediation whenever uh, this project uh, winds down and is shut down. Uh, we're on the hook to clean this up. There's, there's no fund being set aside uh, to manage the process of remediation. And as you alluded to a second ago, there are actually very few long-term jobs being promised here. Even in their optimistic projections, we're talking about a couple hundred jobs long-term. So um, these are a lot of resources that we're giving this company for uh, some pretty mediocre uh, public benefits. Um, and of course, there's that additional risk that if the project isn't really that good a project in the first place, and therefore will require further subsidies uh, just uh, to support it to, con to continue its operations, we know how that will work. We have a lot of experience with that in this province, that uh, the company will, will be back to the public looking for more money, and they will probably get that money once uh, they're up and running. So. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the benefits are here. I think it's really hard to, uh, for us to assess it clearly, but they don't seem to be that great. You did mention um, the aspect of the project that um, they will be, the company is going to be drawing energy from our grid because we all know that wind is intermittent. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, about your thoughts about the GNL, the Government of Newfoundland and Labrador's energy strategy, right? So it's hard looking at it as a layperson to have confidence in how these mega projects will contribute to energy security for the province when they're going to need to draw energy from our grid. And the recent uh, revelation by NL Hydro that it's considering a new diesel powered plant to increase its output because of the expected rising demand coming from all the projects. It doesn't give one confidence that the GNL has a coherent strategy in terms of local energy security and climate crisis mitigation. So I just wonder what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, so uh, I think I would say two things there. The first thing I would say is, I understand from most people who have engineering expertise on these kinds of projects that it was inevitable that World Energy was going to be asking uh, to purchase hydropower off the grid, um, that that's simply a necessary part of the project. I would just point out here that that wasn't made clear back at the start, right, that that they would be looking to purchase a significant chunk of Muskrat Falls uh, power generation. And again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about bad process. Um, had we fully understood that back at the start, we might have had a little more skepticism about what exactly was going on here. That was political science professor Russell Williams of Memorial University, speaking with Tara Manuel of EnviroWatch NL. Considering the scale of the project, it's shocking. There hasn't been more media attention to the impact and to the unanswered questions about the World Energy Project. Perhaps that's because the Port of Port Peninsula is as far away from the newsrooms of St. John's as you can get and still be on the island. Panelist Tammy Park Tai described what is so special about the land and water that compels residents like her to fight so hard to save it. Well, where I live is absolutely beautiful. Um, we have 4,600 people population. We all live along the coastline. So um, if you were going to come out here, you would be able to do the entire peninsula. It's one road and it goes all the way around and you would probably be able to do that in a little over an hour. That's if you drove the whole way. You would absolutely be stopping a lot of the ways because it's absolutely majestic and beautiful. 
um, first with so many things, we have the whales, we have the eagles, we have the osprey that all of the, all of the birds like are just incredible. Um, and we have been kind of at a, at a point where when we saw that map with all of the red dots that um, GH2 had come out with, we were astounded at what that was going to mean for us because it couldn't possibly be that. Uh, it is going to take away the opportunity for the people who live here for generations. My family has lived on um, the Piccadilly area for generations now. Uh, the people here, we have businesses that we all survived COVID and we're still up and running, which is huge. So there's over 25 businesses on the Port-au-Port Peninsula running successfully. Uh, we have people that uh, cut wood in our forests here up on our mountain um, for wood in their wood heat. We use it, we can berry pick there because there's lots, there's an abundance of berries that grow um, naturally here. We hunt here. Um, so this place has been utilized and used for, for generations now. Um, the thing that connects us to the rest of Newfoundland is a, is a little space called the Isthmus. And that's, that's uh, what separates us from the rest of mainland or the rest of the mainland of Newfoundland. And so this place is, there is too much to lose here. And that's why we're fighting as deeply as we are. Um, it's in our backyard, literally. This is where we get our water. Our water all comes from the mountains. So regardless whether you have an artesian well or you have regular well, it's here. We already have a big company. It's, it's, um, it was, it's now taken over by CMEX, um, a mine. And they do blasting usually once a week. Um, I've got cracks in like my foundation because of the blasting that was when we built the house is right behind our house. So the concern now is of course, the amount of you know, explosives that they're going to be using in order to put these turbines up, the kilometers of roads. Um, we already have roads back there. People, the moose have made roads and people that are going to gather their wood have made their wood roads. Um, and this is a place where we're able to utilize and use nature when getting back to the earth is the most important thing. And we've, we've seen that worldwide now, how people are needing to get into the woods in order to feel comfortable with their own mental health, their own well-being, and this is exactly what we have here and what is going to be destroyed if we don't fight this. So, I got upset when Russell was speaking about things because it's it's uh, this is so large and it's such a huge undertaking. We fought so hard. Um, we've got a, some really wonderful people that have been working so hard here on the Port-au-Port Peninsula that have been fighting this and um, we had women going door to door for a, um, just to get signatures to, to ask people directly, do you want this, yes or no, or are you undecided? Those are the questions. And over 84% of the people had want, that doesn't want this here. So it's really, really difficult. Um, we have indigenous people here, we're Mi'kmaq people. We have, um, it, we're the French shore as well. So there's a lot of people that come from French speaking places, um, France and such, and they come along the Port-au-Port Peninsula. We have some really, really strong traditional um, generational of people here. We need to protect this. This is not an industrial dump to be able to put all of these ginormous turbines on our mountaintops and allow us to be the first of its kind and, and just figure it out afterwards. Like the things that I've been hearing is, is, well, it'll be okay. Well, 
says who? <laughs> it's difficult to say that. And so from the Codroy Valley rest resident, because that's the Port-au-Port Peninsula, like, again, we have Mi'kmaq, we have English, we have French, um, we have like Portuguese, Basque. There are so many different ethnicities that live here on the Port-au-Port Peninsula because this is where people come and fish. We have fisher people who have made their lives for generations here, um, getting their lobster, crab, um, scallops. There's all of it that's right here. So there, this is all at risk for us. The people in the Codroy Valley, they have, um, they have, a, they have, um, wait a second now. So they are, this is what the person had said to me. Um, Any construction activity within the Anguil Mountains will directly affect the waterways and vegetation impacting the ecosystem including bird and fish population, it is crucial to recognize that every action undertaken in the Anguil Mountains will have a runoff effect into our valley. So it's going to be the direct impact on their estuary, which is, um, there are over 249 species of birds that have been identified in the Codroy Valley. Uh, these are worries, they're worries about the wetlands, what it's going to do there, and then how that's going to impact the full ecosystem in the Codroy Valley as well because not many people even knew as like I had a, an interview this, this morning and I'm grateful for the media finally having us have an opportunity to, to speak and, and speak about you know why we're fighting so hard here um, but he didn't know that there was anybody that there was anything happening in the Codroy Valley he was like it was new to him and, and I feel like that's the case because if you read the first proposal of this company Codroy Valley wasn't included in that so that just appeared and there's been a lot of that appearing of new things that are happening within this, um, you know, as, as it's been going along. And nothing's even been started yet, right? We haven't gotten the okay to go ahead and start, but the port has been bought, all of that stuff. So, yeah, that's a little bit about this place. The result of the World Energy GH2 project will be the privatization of what are now public assets, land in particular. There's little appreciation of the land as land, even though it supports many businesses that employ many people in the Codron Valley and on the port port Peninsula. Nick Mercer, someone with Newfoundland roots who now teaches at the University of Prince Edward Island, offered an alternative vision of economic development, one that respects the land as it is and the people who call it home. Yeah, I have I have some pretty serious concern around the state of environmental assessment processes in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, and beyond. Um, I mean, I was doing a little bit of research before we hopped on the call here, um, and basically any major environmental disaster uh, we can look at in a Newfoundland and Labrador or Canadian context, odds are that project went through a rigorous environmental assessment process. Uh, so you know when we talk about the countless, you know the hundred of thousands of liters of oil that have been spilt offshore Newfoundland and Labrador over the last half decade, full decade, got an environmental approval through, you know, a federal process or joint provincial process. You know, when we look at the, the 50% of the aquaculture salmon crop that died uh, because of extreme heat and had to be dumped uh, and, you know, decimated wild salmon in, in the rivers, odds are all of those individual processes you know, made its way through an environmental assessment process. Um, so one of the big takeaways that I've, I've had in studying this is environmental assessment is not actually a tool to protect the environment. It's not called the environmental protection process. It's called the environmental assessment process. Uh, so essentially what we do in these bureaucratic processes is we dream what the potential impacts are, and then we put band-aids on them. We don't try to stop them. We try to come up with mitigative strategies 
uh, in order to slow them down. Uh, so I, I really do think that this specific project, you know, is a fait accompli is the, the term I've been using, you know, anytime the prime minister shows up uh, to shake your hand before the, the process is formally started, uh, probably does not mean that it's going to be a fair and unbiased outcome. I'd also note as well that the, the provincial minister of diet, I think that's the department, department of industry, energy and technology, um, he was recently in the media on CBC in this audio documentary. In his words, not mine, this project is more likely than not uh, that it is going to proceed. So I would say this is this process is not here to protect us. Uh, this process is here to support industry. 90 odd percent of projects that go through this process uh, get get blessings. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a way to tidy up around the edges without, uh, you know, making dramatic changes to our relationship with the land uh, or the way that we consume uh, resources. So, no, I, I certainly think that the, the proverbial foxes are guarding the hen house here, uh, and I don't have a, a great deal of confidence in the process. Okay. I sometimes ask myself if I'm uh, too cynical about these things. You know? but... No, you're the right amount of cynical. Thank you. That's uh, validating. <laughs> so, okay. So the next thing um, I know uh, we want to talk to you about is you have uh, expertise and a lot of ideas um, about alternative approaches to economic development that are sensitive to people and place. And you have talked about this idea of energy justice um, in your work. So I wonder, could you talk to us a little bit about that, please? Um, so one idea that I'd like to put forward is this idea of community-based energy systems. So really what, what the principle here is we don't actually need corporations at all. We don't need large-scale resource-intensive uh, extractive projects. You know, this is the way things have always been done. Um, and I've, I'm of the position that if we build the renewable energy future with the same extractive and capitalist values of the fossil fuel era, we're going to end up with the exact same social and economic inequities of the, the fossil fuel era. Uh, so one alternative that's been put forward is that of community-based energy systems. And really the, fee the key features here are number one, deep involvement and process, legitimate power. Uh, so, you know, you're not a passive participant, you know, who's seeing helicopters flying over your head and trying to figure out what's going on. That's a real thing that's happening. <laughs> um, you're in the driver's seat. You get to consent to the development. You get to make the key decisions. I mean, quite dramatically different than what's on offer right now. Uh, the second piece is uh, communities are profoundly involved in the outcomes of projects. So, you know, you're not getting a $10 million I, I think Glenn call it financial appetizer. You know, I would call it a tip perhaps on the, the main bill. Um, instead, you're a co-owner of the project. You own 50% of the thing. You own 51% of the initiative. And therefore you see 51% of the profits that are left behind at the end of the day. And the third common attribute of community energy systems are that of scale. Um, so if you look at the definition of small scale renewable energy in most states in America, for instance, um, anything over 30 megawatts does not count. That's what's considered a, mega, uh, a manageable project. You know, that's about 10 modern industrial uh, wind turbines. You know, those can be managed pretty neatly. Uh, you know, 167 turbines uh, exceeds that threshold by far. Uh, so deep involvement and process commitment uh, to localized benefits, as well as consciously managing the scale of projects and, and striving for decentralized systems of power uh, instead of centralized systems of power or it's a lot of the work that I'm doing in in Labrador and now in western Newfoundland as well as beyond 
Uh, the second tool that I'll offer, though, again, us academics, Russell, we love acronyms. Um, this one's one of my favorite. It's called ABCD or Asset Based Community Development. Uh, and the idea here is that instead of a, a corporation coming in and saying, oh, we have huge unemployment rates, so the economy is depressed, we're going to change your lives with this magic box. Uh, instead, community members are empowered to identify their unique uh, cultural and natural assets and strengths, and then you build on those. So as I hear Tammy talk about you know, the 30 businesses around the port of port Peninsula, the harvesting activities, the ceremonial activities, the rich culture, you would start with those as your assets and then build out from there. Um, in one region of the province that has had incredible success with the asset-based community development model is that of Fogo Island. Uh, so again, we, we had a cod collapse in Fogo, you know, similar to the port of port in terms of, you know, exhaustion of resources. And instead of World Energy GH2 coming in saying, listen, Fogo, this is the way it's going to be. 167 wind turbines, live with it. You had the Shorefast Foundation and community members who said, what are we good at? We're good at art. We're good at hospitality. We're good at local food. Uh, and they've been able to transform those local assets into a revitalized rural economy. But I would hasten and hypothesize that uh, had a company like World Energy GH2 had its way in Fogo Island, that Fogo Island would not be the world-class tourist destination uh, that it is today. So I think there's a lot to learn from both community energy systems and ABCD on the, the Port of Port Peninsula. Nick Mercer, who teaches island studies and environmental studies at UPEI. Highlights from the forum on the controversial wind energy project plan for the Port of Port Peninsula and Kajori Valley. More information about EnviroWatchNL on its Facebook page or at EnviroWatchNL.com. And on the Facebook page, you can see the complete live stream of the public forum. And that's it for the program. The Mi'kmaq Matters team is producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Janes, and researcher Hilary McGinnis. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Emson Okama.